Hello, welcome to Deep Space Dive, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast. DS9 is the Star Trek with the greatest focus on political concepts like colonialism, feminism, queerness, post-scarcity, economics, all that good stuff. So join us and our guests who include activists, academics, artists, therapists, and more as we do a deep dive into the text and subtext where few Star Trek podcasts have gone before. We'll be discussing Deep Space Nine's themes and characters with a different topic each week. We are not doing recaps. There are many other fine podcasts that do those. If you are in the middle of your first time watching and you don't want spoilers, we are going to warn you that this is an all spoilers all the time podcast. So we recommend that if you are avoiding spoilers, you finish watching the show and then all of these episodes will be... um, Will, will be archived for your listening and binging pleasure. Mm-hmm. And who the heck are we? I'm Ilana Levin, also the host of Graphic Policy Radio. Uh, I've worked at the intersection of comics, nerd culture, and social change for over a decade. And um, I have to say my biggest Star Trek cred is I got to give a speech on fan activism at a rally organized by Chase Masterson, a.k.a. Lita, And I'm Sarah Daniel Rasher. When I'm not getting paid to use math to save the world, I write about film and figure skating. I was the founding captain of my high school Star Trek club, and I once got Nicole DeBoer to kiss me at a convention. Aww. So one of the great things about Deep Space Nine is that so much of it seems current, but some aspects of the show are definitely a product of their time. One thing about Deep Space Nine that is stuck in the 90s is its style of feminism. That's not a bad thing because a lot of the feminist ideas introduced in the 90s are still important today, and we can learn from the parts that have changed. Deep Space Nine premiered at the height of the third wave feminism movement, which started from the premise that earlier generations had made great strides in basic economic and civic equality, but there was still a lot of work to do. In this episode, we'll look at how Deep Space Nine incorporated the feminist thought of the 90s into its depiction of women and gender, and how that explains why Major Kira is always wearing a full face of makeup, even when she's roaming caves with a facer rifle. Is it because it's hot? Actually, it would also be hot if she wasn't. Layers upon layers. So... You know, while this show is all about bringing in expert guests to join us, this is one of those topics where Sarah, Daniel, and I realized that we actually can handle this ourselves. (laughs) Uh, We went to college at Sarah Lawrence in the late 90s, so third wave feminism is sort of our bread and butter. I did a lot of reading on feminist art in particular and was also involved in queer activism, basically since I hit puberty, and with a focus on sex positive education and sex education, feminist organizing was all part and parcel of that. We figured we didn't really need a guest on this one, especially because... In addition to partially becoming friends with Alana in the first place through a lot of that queer and feminist and sex-positive activism, I don't think I've mentioned yet on this podcast that I have a PhD in English, um, specifically with a concentration in gender and queer studies and also Shakespeare, but that's another whole episode. So when this topic came up, my response was, yes, I will go find the presentation I made for my grad school critical theory course in 2007. I am actually an expert in this area. And 
it colors the way I watch TV and movies and read books and comic books in general. Um, but I'm especially enthusiastic about bringing that sort of academic knowledge to this sort of fun and relaxed discussion. So the way we're going to structure this is I have made a list of major concepts and movements within 1990s feminism, and we're going to go through them and talk about how each of them relates to what we're seeing on the screen in Deep Space Nine. Um, before we start, because we got some questions about it, we want to make clear that this is not an episode about obvious misogyny or anything that Quark does to women or any of the <laughs> ick moments from like Bashir and Worf and Nog being like terrible jerks to women. Like that's something for other episodes when we talk about the Ferengi, when we talk about Quark specifically, when we talk about things from this show that we just pretend didn't happen for our own sanity, which is an actual thing on our list of episodes. Um, we will get back to the stuff that really does bother us and really is a problem. But for this one, we really just want to look at how Deep Space Nine interprets the feminism of its time and how successful it is in doing that because our overall impression, both from watching the show and from reading press that was released at the time of the show, was that there was an attempt and an intention to be a feminist sci-fi show. Yeah, absolutely. So I titled our list of topics Sarah Sarah's English Nerd Corner, trademark. Um, <laughs> and I'm going to start with a major event in the 1990s that really shaped the kind of feminism that arose during this time period, which felt like it was the way things were going to be forever when we were in middle school and high school and now really feels like a piece of history that we've moved on from and really changed from. Um, so one of the major, major things to note is that Deep Space Nine aired almost entirely while Bill Clinton was president and is really shaped by this sort of centrist political philosophies that were current and mainstream at the time. Um, but the term third wave, which is the kind of feminism that is associated with the 90s is third wave feminism, was coined in 1992, just before Clinton was elected, in the fallout from Clarence Thomas's appointment to the Supreme Court. And that term first became popularized through an article from 1992 by Rebecca Walker. The story behind um, Th Thomas's Supreme Court hearings for anybody who is listening to us who is younger than us um, is that uh, that a former colleague of Clarence Thomas, while he was being considered for appointment to the Supreme Court, her name was Anita Hill. She accused him of ongoing, invasive, and humiliating workplace sexual harassment. The Thomas and Hill case is, is a defining event of the third wave because it incorporates pretty much every topic we're going to summarize. And Deep Space Nine makes much reference to it and to sexual harassment in general. So our first topic is really to talk about the political climate of feminism in the 90s and especially things like 
um, sexual harassment and the fact that more broadly, the president was somebody who on the one hand was seen as um, a sort of relief from Reagan era. So social policy, somebody who might enact more feminist policies. And on the other hand, was sort of a well-known gross womanizer, um, which we sort of all accepted with a wink and a smile at the time. So Alana, how do you see this political climate um, influencing how Deep Space Nine represented gender politics? I mean, and just just to put it quickly, though, like, you know, Clinton was accused of serious sexual harassment, and it was just treated as like a as like a cute joke, you know, Anita Hill is an American hero. Clarice Thompson is an absolute monster and Biden really fucked this one up. Anyhow. Yeah. I think like the, the thing that this show kind of shares with these sort of Clintonian feminist perspective of like the people who view themselves as being like leaders as opposed to activists was the understanding that, women should have equality, but it didn't, doesn't quite necessarily always get to what the actual equality is and still try and has a little bit of like, on the one hand, on the other hand, uh, one of the great things about the show is that it, it lands more on the correct hand than the, the wrong hand, (laughs) um, in, in that, in that way. So, you know, it does, so DS9 does have a starting assumption that like women should be able to do whatever the hell they want to do and not be judged for it. Yeah, and it also fairly consistently depicts, even in some alien cultures where you wouldn't expect it, um, men making those assumptions about women. Surely, like, Cisco is thrilled that his second-in-command is a woman. He gives women positions of power and authority and trust their judgment and expertise consistently throughout the show. Um, Cisco is sort of our gold star male feminist um, Mm -hmm. in the show in a lot of ways, but we even see things like, um, like general Martok frequently giving women in Klingon command structures a lot of power and authority and trusting them and seeming to be skeptical of some sort of sexist Klingon philosophies. So we do see a lot of that, like women can do anything. Women are as competent as men kind of base baseline girls can do it together kind of feminism there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's one of the great things about, the Bajoran, the portrayal of the Bajoran culture, you know, as a culture that's deeply religious, but egalitarian. And it, I, I know I'll be talking a lot more about that when we talk about Bajoran culture, but like, it is practically a relief to see on television that like people can be religious and egalitarian when it comes to how it, how, how gender is assigned for different roles and stuff like that. Yeah. And it's so thorough that we have space to create female villains where their villainy isn't sexualized like Kai Wynn mm-hmm. is awful but she's not awful because she's a woman like it's important right. that she's a woman in all kinds of ways but it's not like oh she's you know 
an evil witch or she's, you know, a sort of sexualized predator. One of the other things that feels like such a relief with the show is that it doesn't have this like, and here's the one where we talk about sexism kinds of episodes that often. It's just the part of the overall fabric. Um, and when and when and when uh, and when they encounter specific cultures that are sexist, like the Ferengi, like there's just the assumption that like this is a problem and we should address it. Like while we, on the one hand, you know, Star Trek tries to recognize the diversity of cultures, it still views sexism as a problem. Yeah, um, and there's a sort of underlying assumption that as cultures of advance, they move towards gender equity. And yeah. the whole plot with Moogie fighting for women's rights on Ferenginar is a big part of that sort of 90s philosophy of eventually women will demand civic and health and um, economic rights. And you can only create a patriarchal and misogynist and repressive society for so long before that backlash arises. Um, On the other hand, I do think it's important to note that, um, that there is a little bit of that sort of Clinton era, boys will be boys. You know, if, if he hits on you, it's a compliment kind of attitude towards um, relationships between men and women where things that we now kind of go, yeah, maybe that's not the best way to show men, especially interacting with women, that at the time you kind of go back and say, yeah, and we were seeing that as progressive in 1995. Yes, especially in the workplace especially in the workplace, it's an issue. Yeah, there's all kinds of workplace romances, which, of course, pop culture has not nearly moved on from. Um, (laughs) But, like, you know, now we kind of want to call HR on Dax and Worf at the time. It was just adorable. So, um, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Sigh. Both Dexes and Worf, in fact. Uh, but yeah, so um, the episode that I think of when I think about specifically the shadow of Clarence Thomas is an otherwise unremarkable and kind of boring first season episode called Dax, in which Jadzia is on trial for murdering the husband of a woman that he was having an affair with. Um, And what was potentially interesting, although the episode didn't quite follow through on its promise, was the sort of image of this young woman being put on trial for an older man and mentor who we later learn also sexually harassed her um, for his bad actions towards women. Um, And for me, like a lot about that episode is a missed opportunity, but the episode that I want that episode to be is very much showing 
the way that the subsequent victims of men who behave badly in um, in workplace situations and other social situations and men who victimize women is that often their other victims either become complicit or end up being blamed for those actions. So, Awana, anything else on that particular point or should we move on to intersectionality? Let's do it. All right. Um, so the second big topic in 90s feminism is the topic of intersectionality, which is something that 90s feminism literally invented. Um, that's Kimberly Williams Crenshaw in 1989. And her central point, which we are still talking about very much today, this is probably the biggest, they got it right in the 90s of this era of feminism, is Crenshaw's argument that feminism needs to talk about all kinds of women, not just able-bodied, straight, white, economically advantaged Western women. And we can't do the real work of feminism without acknowledging that most women are also something else in addition to being women. Um, And then the ideas are subsequently built upon by lots of other black and POC feminists like Bell Hooks, Audre Lorde, and Gloria Ansaldúa. And Ansaldúa coined a sort of complementary word, which is mestizaje, um, which is a way of talking about being mixed or in the middle as a result of having multiple identities. Um, And the ideas of intersectionality and mestizaje are the parts of third wave feminism that we still use and expand on most today. And I also feel like there's something that's really pervasive in Deep Space Nine and that of the topics we're going to look at is one of the ones that um, Deep Space Nine is most intentional and most successful in a lot of ways. I think maybe what we can do is we can talk about some of the women on the show who are shown having multiple identities. And the one I actually wanted to start with is Kai Wynn. Hmm. Um, as somebody for whom being a woman in power is important, but also being a religious person and being a Bajoran who survived the Cardassian occupation. Right. And her particular strain of the religion being like a traditionalist piece of it. And again, note that even in the traditionalist part of the Bajoran religion, women are allowed to be in charge. Um, yeah, I mean, I think this is the, I'm not like a big TNG person, but just simply having more women of color who are actual characters in this so that it's not saying like, look, we have a woman. Good for us for the women. Like, you know, the prob- it's unfortunate that there isn't a woman of color who's like a main cast member, though. But um, there is like actual understanding that having white women is not enough. Yeah, I mean, there's really good and interesting supporting women of color, especially Keiko and Cassidy Yates. And there's certainly female characters who are aliens, which are often at least intended as stand-ins for human diversity. Um, There's also no human women in the main cast. Um, Oh, wow. 
Yeah. Yep. And so um, both Dax and Kira are continually um, dealing with representing their own cultures and their own alienness, as well as being women who are present and visible. One of the great, Cassidy Yates is just great, period. But one of the many ways that Cassidy Yates is great is, you know, when she, in the episodes where they're dealing with the Las Vegas, um, I, I love how Cisco points out, like, the reason I don't like playing dress up in 1962 Las Vegas is because I am black and this is not comfortable for me. I don't want to like pretend like we're making nice in this time in which I would be impressed, which is a completely legitimate. And I like fist pumped when he said it. And then Cassidy Yates's piece is like, yeah, but we can totally subvert this now. And like, we can have this in our pretend when we couldn't have had it in real life. And then I fist pumped for that too. Yeah. Um, that I love that scene. Um, and I think it's really representative of a conversations that we very frequently have um, that, you know, both of us being white, we don't have in that context, but we certainly have as, you know, queer people and Jewish people um, is that there really are two ways of responding to inserting ourselves into narratives where people like us didn't exist or weren't visible And I just love that they were able to so concisely represent like Cassidy saying, yeah, one way to respond is to be really angry. And the other way to respond is to imagine the version of it in which we were able to be included. And I think that that's kind of the approach that Deep Space Nine takes overall is whereas I'd say like, the original series has that sort of 60s colorblindness and idea of equity that Deep Space Nine is much more in that, like, we see gender, we see color, we see difference, um, but we're going to talk about it as something where circumstances have changed and our understanding has changed and imagine that future and imagine that society. Totally. What other ways do you see um, Deep Space Nine being intersectional? Not particularly through a feminist lens, to be honest. There's like lots of, it, it definitely treats people as identities as such and like is a major theme for lots of the character storylines. But I think that's, that pretty much covers it for me on terms of feminism. Okay. Yeah. I think that it's something that we're going to keep coming back to in various ways as we discuss it and might have to be going like, if you want to hear the definition of intersectionality, go back to episode three. But yeah, in terms of feminism, um, we do, I mean, we see it in a lot of Dax negotiating, having had um past lives where she was a man as well as current lives in which she is a woman. Um, But we don't see it dug into the way that feminist theorists might have been doing it, or even the way that as soon as Voyager, we might've seen that addressed more directly and with more nuance. Yeah. So I'm going to move on to our third big topic, which 
we kept headlining in different ways because it's a bunch of sort of intersecting topics having to do with reproductive and sexual politics. Um, one of the main sort of political third rails of the 90s, which has not stopped being a site of political conflict and discourse, um, is that the 90s was when the anti-abortion movement went from like sort of conscientious objectors to like a radicalized movement on the right. Yeah, uh, terrorists who kill people. Yes, a, and and harassed people and just, it, and where it became like a single issue voter issue where like people yeah. would vote for Republicans solely because they were opposed to abortion. Um, and while a lot of the terminology surrounding abortion rights came from the 1970s and what was thought of as second wave feminism, a lot of those, that language become became a lot more widespread and part of just the universal cultural voc- vocabulary. And also there was a desire to shift some language towards what was seen and is still seen as more representative of what it actually meant. So moving towards um, language like reproductive rights and reproductive freedom rather than just talking about abortion and especially talking about things like access to birth control and contraception, um, talking about access to um, for, for, to fertility treatments for, for people who did yeah. want to become pregnant. Um, and also a lot of conversation about things like pornography and sex workers and and acknowledging um, the potential rights and needs of of um, of sex workers of all kinds and of the work they do and produce um, and um, the language of sex positivity and then the backlash to sex positivity. And that's something that we now, 25, 30 years later, are still reckoning with. As much as it kills me. Yeah, I, it's one of the one of the things that the show really does understand as important is the ability to choose to have children or not. Um, when couples are experience, it acknowledges that some couples have a hard time, you know, getting pregnant and that like helping them to do that is important. Uh, and then conversely, I, I do kind of wish this was a little bit more of a focus scene because I feel like some folks miss it. When Cassidy Yates announces to Cisco that she's pregnant, we find out that in D Space Nine, both men and women get birth control shots. So birth control is not just the job of women to like take hormones and like, you know, have various unpleasant side effects like men deal with that shit, too. Um, and it's basically Cisco basically is like, OK, like, do you want to have this child or not? I.e. he's saying, of course, like, it's up to you if you want to, you know, have a baby or not. I.e. abortion is on the table. I wish they used the word abortion because it's really important for us to normalize abortion because like one third of women and, uh, you know, a big chunk of people who have ovaries and are not and don't ID as women have abortions at some point in their life. It's 
you know, normal medical care. Um, but basically the fact that he's saying like, it's, you know, you could choose not to have this baby is like acknowledging that abortion happens, it's legal, it's a thing, and that it's up to Cassidy whether she wants to have a baby or not. And she chooses to have the baby. Um, and a lot of times in science fiction, I see a lot of women who choose to have babies in situations where I could not fucking fathom them wanting to have a kid, like in Terminator. Like you just met this guy once and you're going to have a kid with him? Excuse me? But um, in this case, I was like, yeah, no, they're about to, they just got married. I can see, you know, she's a grown ass woman. Like I can see her making, you know, a reason. I know that as a good feminist, I'm not supposed to judge other women's decisions. But the fact that it's so consistently on television, women saying yes to having babies in situations that are just baffling. It is always nice to see a woman given the choice to have a baby or not and, and saying yes to it in a situation where you're like, yeah, that adds up. And in Deep Space Nine, um, the choice to have children is consistently a choice and it's planned because the other two conversations around having kids both bring in discussions of choice. So when Keiko becomes pregnant with um, the child who will eventually become Yoshi, um, it is a little bit of an oops. Um, but it's one where when, you know, Molly comes toddling up um, off of the out of the airlock going, mommy has a baby in her belly. Then the conversation is like, well, we had really talked about having another child sometime. Are we ready for this? And they agree that they're ready for it and they are excited about it. And sure. something I'm going to bring up just from <laughs> a conversation with a friend who's rewatching now, a straight white male friend, is that he's like, so everybody just assumes that like, Keiko was cheating on Miles, right? And Alana and I were both like, no, ew, why would you think that the baby is clearly Miles's? Um, and he's clearly thrilled. Um, and he's a very... I don't know that he's thrilled, actually. I think... He but, comes around. He comes around real quick. Um, yeah, you know, he gets he's those thrilled to be a but... dad. He loves being a dad. He loves yes. being with his kids. And That's definitely true. It's a really positive and very 90s feminist portrayal of fatherhood, too, that he's mm -hmm. a, an enthusiastic parent. Um, definitely. And then the other conversation, which is the one that it's like, get your hankies out now, is that right before Jadzia gets killed off, she promises Worth that she wants to have a baby with him and that she's really that she's ready and she's happy about it and that they should start trying, knowing that there's going to have to be some medical intervention for them to be able to conceive. Another thing that the show really does a lot is it has sex workers on it. And while I don't think this is the show that a sex worker would write themselves for portrayals of sex workers, it like ain't bad it ain't bad <laughs> um i mean for one thing i appreciate that you know jake cisco is basically dating a sex worker and his and ben is like that's okay like his dad's not like you know i mean she's too old for him okay but like her, her being a sex worker is not a problem with his dad basically and of course our beloved lita who her job is, not, you know, sex worker is not her official job description, but she's certainly somebody who that is part of her de facto job description. Not only is she consistently portrayed as this sort of 
smart, independent, enterprising person. But as somebody who has chosen this job and yeah. likes it and dislikes parts of it, but could be doing other things and is doing this of her own free choice. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, when they go to Riza, like, you have Vanessa Williams, like, who's very much like, I am a sex worker. This is my job. I'm a professional. Don't, like, question my knowledge. And everybody's like, this is normal and fine. We go to this planet and we do sex worker stuff with people. And that's okay. And it's also even what's really interesting is, like, we all know, and, you know, Lower Decks has now made it canon, that the thing we use the holodeck or the holodeck or the holosuite for is mostly masturbation. So the idea that there are still flesh and blood sex workers and that they have a role within this future economy and that sex work is not something that you can automate is really pretty radical. That's really true. And speaking of the holodecks are for porn, Kira and Dax uh, have... I mean, regardless of whether or not you ship them as a couple, you can certainly argue that when they go to play dress up in the hollow suite, which is for porn, there's potential there as well as, as you point out, like there's a whole thing where they go to get like massages from, you know, shirtless buff men in the hollow suite, which yeah, again, is porn. And like people aren't judging them for that. This is just like a normal thing that women do. And that's fine. Yeah. And, and that, and- it's not just something normal that women do and it's fine. It's something normal that women do that Quark is making money off of. <laughs> right. That it's significant enough that it's part of the economics of the space. And, and I mean, it's from additional political context, like one of the one of the biggest conflicts within the feminist community in the 80s and 90s was over pornography, um, whether or not porn was inherently sexist whether or not porn was part of like natural, healthy sexual expression that women also enjoy. Uh, yeah, they do. Um, whether or not it was just a labor issue that we have to protect people for. Um, and that was some of like the most visible in the media de- um, debate over feminism during those time periods. Also, it was a huge conflict in the lesbian community. In the end of it, basically, the, the pro- pro-porn feminist won. There are moments now where it doesn't feel that way, as we sometimes worry about a particular puritanical concerns coming from some folks, often younger, unfortunately, in the spaces. But, um, but you know, it kind of was at the point where if you were a feminist, you you were you knew you were supposed to say that you know, okay, it's okay to like feminist porn, and if there's problems in porn, it's because of you know workers not getting paid fairly or particular people who are abusing workers in the feminist space, like, and there's definitely, I mean, I'm speaking from the perspective of like a New York activist. So I, I, I you know, I'm, I'm maybe things felt completely different in other places, but you know, we've, we, we came to a point where like, it was no longer, we're like getting rid of porn. Wasn't like the focus of any feminist organization that, you know, of any prominence. And uh, so the fact that the show was sort of like at this point where like, yeah, women consume porn. That's a thing. Women have sex drives. That's okay. And like that, the issue was making sure that the sex workers' rights are preserved um, is particularly timely for the show. Yeah, um, and that kind of feeds into a question that we got on Twitter that was asking about um, both Kira and Dex having very active 
sexual lives, both inner lives and, you know, personal lives with other people, and that those lives tended to contrast with each other. Um, do you have that tweet handy or can you summarize? Yeah. Yep. Um, uh, Lesbian Jubilee, who is a great account to follow on Twitter, said, Kira seems more reserved while Jadzia is more openly sexual. Um, this is also reflected in their dating habits. Kira only likes Bajoran and human men, whereas Jadzia likes all kinds of a- alien men and women. Um, and, you know, obviously Kira does date Odo, but he models himself after a Bajoran man. Uh, so what do we think? Does the show validate both their approaches to sexuality or does it approve of one and disprove of the other? What is the show saying with portrayals of those different approaches? Um, there's a, a cup. One of the things is that yeah, De- Kira definitely is interested in Bajoran and humans and like, that's it. And her and Jadzia are frequently joking over Jadzia being much more omnivorous and multi-species in her attractions. But Kira has casual sex too. Like Kira, Kira doesn't have as much casual sex as Jadzia does, but Kira has casual sex too. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I will point out as I, you will find me doing a lot. Odo is Bajoran. He doesn't model himself after Bajoran. He was raised on Bajor. His first language is Bajoran. He's Bajoran. Um, <laughs> but so, but yeah, um, uh, my lovely fiance and I have like a running joke about Kira having very specific taste in men. And it's not uh-huh. so much that she prefers a specific species as she prefers that guy over and over. <laughs> and that... Yeah. Odo and Odo would have won Kira in like season two if he had figured out how to look a little more like that guy. Um, yeah, but yeah, um, Kira is more of like a serial monogamist where like she has the boyfriend and then she has the sex, and but there's always an expectation that like when she's in a relationship, that relationship is going to be sexual and that she's not waiting for a certain level of commitment. She's not putting up with sex for the pleasure of her partner, um, that she has sex for pleasure and that that is part of what her assumption of what a healthy relationship is going to be. And I don't think it's necessarily that she's more reserved. It's just that she's not Dax, who uh, is more of a... um, Dionysian figure in general where just part of Dax's Dax drinks and gambles and you know fights on the holodeck and picks up all kinds of interesting people and sleeps with them um and where sometimes there's jokes made about that but they're not mean jokes they're just sort of haha this is how Dax is kind of jokes and that when Dax falls in love with Worf that one of her real Um, one of the things that she really contemplates and decides is that she loves this person enough that she's going to attempt monogamy um, and that this person is worth it to her and that that's a powerful statement that's very much in line with the kind of sex positivity that we see in the 90s, which is still kind of... um, it's very heterosexual. It's very monogamy focused or monogamy as endgame focused, but it's still but, leaving space for someone like Dax who, mm-hmm. while single, um, chooses to have lots of partners and lots of um, casual and brief encounters. 
And like the jokes that they make about Dax hooking up with random people are the same jokes they would make if Dax was a man. They're totally like, oh, total player, you know, player's going to do player thing. It's like, it's, it's not, it's not at all like, oh my gosh, she's a slut. It's never that. It's exactly the same jokes they would make if she was a man. Yeah. The only instance of, um, Dax being judged for that behavior is in um, the episode on Ryza that we kind of pretend doesn't exist, where Worf suddenly, despite, you know, all that he knows about Judzia, suddenly getting jealous about her having like past lovers and uh, past experiences, even though she's committed to and sticks to um, Mm -hmm. monogamy with Worf. Yeah, I mean, it's a thing where I I think it would have been interesting for the show to touch on their different approaches to sex that they've had, but not for him to be so suddenly, like, critical of who she's been in this way that, like, how has this not come up before? Hi, do you not know this? Like, kind of a, a way. Especially because, like, they started having, you know, really, like, intense sex immediately upon being a couple so it's like yeah Worf you benefited from that so shut up um but again like I said like there's I I I do appreciate the way the show treats Vanessa Williams's character on Ryza in that one for sure I also really like the Bajoran like couple having a breakup ritual that Lita and um and uh Bashir have like in that episode that's a cool healthy way to be with your ex assuming it's not an abusive terrible person or something um so yeah I mean I just I think like I I I actually like think that the show does a pretty good job with sexuality in terms of like letting women be pro-sex you know the melora i mean lord knows bashir should not be fucking one of his patients but the show does not condemn melora for being like yeah i'm totally gonna have zero gravity sex with this man i just met that's fine you know what i mean like when when people have like random seductions with like one-off aliens the women are not questioned for that at all it also one of the more interesting aspects of Quark, who tends to get sort of like one dimensionally derided for his worst moments of misogyny. And there are many is that it seems it's sort of a defense mechanism because all of the women he's really attracted to are sort of archetypes of like progressive feminist, independent women where Mm -hmm. he's in love with, um, with the sort of like Cardassian freedom fighter type. And then he's in love with Grilka. And then he's like carrying a torch for Judzia Dax that like um, his misogyny is almost this like performative way to cover up the fact that the women that he most appreciates and most desires are the ones who conform most with um with feminist ideals and embrace them the most in their own lives. Actually, the fact that the show sort of universally acknowledges that Grilka is hot is itself a pretty cool feminist thing, because I could see an earlier series or even a different contemporary show playing it as a joke that this like, you know, 100% Klingon woman with a full Klingon teeth and brow and all of these other characteristics that are often gendered as male in the way people like talk about attractiveness 
is seen as like a desirable woman and just that's a given um throughout throughout the show women being desirable is pretty much never played for a joke it's i mean even though the the romance between zek and moogie is ridiculous like it's not ridiculous because moogie is old that's true yeah the fact that moogie has a healthy sex life as an old woman and like is really fucking cool and, like, his attraction for her seems genuine, and nobody's weirded out. And, in fact, people are kind of like, okay, at least they're both old. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> like there's something sort of sort of satisfying about that. Um, that all while certainly the um, female leads and the more prominent female characters tend to be conventional Hollywood attractive, like nobody is ever ridiculed for finding diverse bodies attractive. Here, here, definitely. Oh, and Ke- you know Keiko. Also, the fact that this is sort of going back, but the fact that it's taken as a given that, like, of course Keiko cares about her career and like deserves to be a fully actualized person. And of course, and Miles just- and Keiko continue to have a sex life and continue to um, treat their sexual relationship is an important component of their marriage. Yeah, totally. As much as their marriage is a complete nightmare, and we will talk about it with a friend of mine who's a therapist in an upcoming episode. Um, Yeah. Woo there. Uh, But anyway, yes. And I mean, one of the things, too, is that people on Deep Space Nine have an, an impressively mature ability to decide that having sex with each other is a bad idea. So, like, the fact that O'Brien and Kira don't sleep together um, is also sort of a sex-positive statement because part of sex positivity always is making responsible sexual choices and um, and that is a, a responsible sexual choice for them to look at each other and say, the attraction is there, in another lifetime maybe it would have happened, it's not happening now. And we're just going to move on and be friends. Well, shit, the, the, the fact that the show takes surrogacy as a legitimate way to have a baby is another cool thing that it does. And it negotiates um, consistently with Kira's role in Yoshi's life after he's born. Um, yeah. And acknowledges that she is part of that family because they choose to have her be part of that family and because she chooses to be part of it. Yeah. Aw. Yeah. Um, so moving on from what is clearly our favorite bullet point on our bullet point list, <laughs> um, we could talk all day about sex positivity. I want to talk about something that's related to that um, and something that um, that is definitely like a function, especially of us coming of age in this era of feminism. Which what what is um, sometimes sort of derisively referred to as girly feminism, and what I prefer and others prefer to refer to as sassy magazine feminism. Um, <laughs> after, if you are exactly our age, there was this wonderful magazine that posed as like just another like teen fashion magazine. It was instead like teaching you how to be like a feminist and listen to good music. It would like have fashion spreads with like hot boy and hot clothes of the month. And then it would like have all of the captions would be velvet underground lyrics. 
And yeah. this explains everything you need to know about both me and Alana. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like it had articles about La Tigra. Yeah. Okay. And like and like Bikini Kill and like how you could go to Riot Girl shows. It was basically in a teen teen magazine. Vogue. 20 years before Teen Vogue. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like, with way more interesting fashion and, like, way more accessible, like, here's cool stuff you can just make at home kinds of stuff. Sassy Magazine was so important to me when I was younger. Like, it definitely turned me on to music. Um, It got me into indie underground comics, even, which, if you listen to my podcast, is kind of a big thing. Um, I, I, It was really a blessing. Yeah. Um, and it was it was really it was its approach to informing and guiding young women was so very in line with the feminism of the time. And in addition to it being very sex positive and very sort of economically egalitarian it, with sort of the assumption that like if you're reading this, you were going to grow up and, you know, gain power in society. And like, that's just Mm -hmm. what this is, Um, (laughs) is uh, is also the idea that um, feminism is compatible with with traditionally feminine self-presentation or, you know, whatever your personal adaptation of femininity is. Um, that earlier generations of feminism had sort of said, you know, wearing makeup or shaving your legs um, is giving into the patriarchy and is, you know, positioning yourself for the male gaze. Whereas in the 90s, that sort of shifted to like, if you like wearing a dress and carrying a purse, cool. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, if it's if you are choosing to do that and if you that's a message that you're sending on purpose um, and if that makes you feel strong and empowered, then please do that because, you know, all kinds of women are welcome in feminism and indeed all kinds of people are welcome in feminism where 90s feminism was welcoming to, first of all, the acknowledgement that queer people exist and also the acknowledgement that men can be feminists and men can approach their lives and their relationships through a feminist lens, um, that it requires hard work on their part, but that feminism really is for everybody. Um, And it rejected earlier generations of feminism that uh, pushed for separating yourself from men or from um, hating men or from blaming individual men for the sort of collective patriarchy. Um, And in fact, um, started moving towards the idea of um, men having responsibility for advancing feminism. Um, Yeah. And and relating back to sex positivity, also the idea that um, women who are attracted to men should be empowered to act on those attractions because sex positivity means you get to choose who you have sex with. Yeah. And this was like big. I mean, no joke. Like, I swear my mom acted like I betrayed her when I like wore makeup when I was younger. Um, 
I mean, like this was like a real, this was like an actual generational conflict for folks, of, you know, between second and third wave feminism. Um, and we, one of the other things that was great with Sassy is that it would also be like, you could wear makeup, you don't have to wear makeup. And wearing makeup doesn't mean you're covering up something. You're not like wearing lipstick because you think you're ugly. You might be wearing lipstick, which incidentally is blue because you think it's interesting and cool and it's part of self-expression. And yeah, Which and kind of what to, you're getting into sorry. is like, you know, makeup doesn't have to be the sort of like conventional, you know, pretty makeup. It can be makeup that you're playing with or experimenting with or making a statement with. Yeah. Yeah. Which brings us to talking about how you get different kinds of feminine, uh, of female present, self-presentation presented on the show. And while like it doesn't, Star Trek, like, I mean, it's, we still don't have, we do not have adequate butch representation on, like, anything in the world, basically. Uh, it has more diversity in how women present themselves on this show than a lot of other things did. Yeah. Um, and one of the things I noticed at the time when I was first watching in high school and continually notice now is... We've got one woman who has short hair and one woman who, you know, Terry Farrell doesn't need a whole lot of makeup to make her shine. And so they didn't they just didn't put a whole lot of makeup on Terry Farrell after the first half of the first season, um, just because that's not the kind of person she is. Um, and there's lots of women wearing practical clothing throughout the show. Um, and then there's the other side of it. Then you have Garrick, who is very invested in sort of being a peacock and Quark in his way. Quark suits are okay. Oh, thing. yeah. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> people who wanted us to talk about Quark on this episode, you're welcome and we're sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and it's like, I, I mean, I was I was sort of torn. Like, we want to like figure like are, like are we trying to map Kira on like a butch femme spectrum as like so you know a woman with short hair on the show who absolutely has like serious swagger um, and who you know if I if I was making the show from scratch I might be like no we're gonna like have this character straight up be butch but she has like a lot of dark smoky makeup on the show which is not to say that butch people do not wear makeup sometimes because hi, but um, it's sort of complicated. And Sarah, you had a theory around, around a a no prize theory around. Oh, it is time for Sarah Daniels, no prize corner. Um, After Mm -hmm. which I will get back to the, to butch femme politics in the nineties. But so one of the things that everybody kind of notices about Kira is that she's, you know, this tough ex-terrorist you know revolutionary and she's got the you know the the sort of um short tough fighter girl hair and whatever and she's always like i woke up like this full face of makeup like Mm -hmm. the eyes are smoky eye makeup yeah like like intricate smoky eye like lip liner under the lipstick under the like gloss, like deeply involved beauty makeup. So my so so Sarah Daniels no prize corner is and uh, is that uh, 
this is a reflection of who Kira is and where she comes from because she has spent the entirety of her life in situations where she had no ability to even bathe or get clothes that were clean and in good repair or to cut her hair. And now she's able to control her appearance for really the first time in her life. And so the idea that she wakes up an hour early so her face can be perfect when she goes to work every day is really a sign of liberation for her. That it's like she walks into the room with, with those with those eyes done and it's her way of saying, we won and now I get to do my eyes in the morning. Yeah, this is definitely something like, you know, my, my, my family are Holocaust survivors and like, I mean, my... My grandpa was a tailor, so he and was a serious fashion plate prior to the Holocaust. But like they both made both my grandpa and my grandma were like hardcore, like fashion, fabulous, like always done up to the nines people. And I, in part, like because that was reaffirming their humanity, uh, their ability to make choices for themselves and their self expression after surviving the, you know, being in like Auschwitz and labor camps. Yeah. Um, And I come from Jewish tailors, too. And it was really a common thing um, growing up, I think, for both of us in Jewish families to see like these older women for whom the ability to dress up and have nice things was really meaningful to them. Yeah. So I, you know, I, 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 I'd always had such conflicted feelings about how I wanted Kara to present herself and like you definitely gave me a good and like believable and like i i subscribe to your no prize uh way to think about it my other defense because, of it which yeah. i wasn't going to get into but you brought up the butch femme dichotomy so now we're stuck with it um Hooray. and this is me speaking as for those of you who who only know me as a voice as somebody who um was assigned female is non-binary and grew up in the 90s in a queer environment um, where you had to sort of like choose your side and decide whether you were butch or femme. And I was always just an absolute train wreck at being either one because I'm on the one hand, like I knew I was transmasculine. And on the other hand, I really liked, you know, doing my nails. Um, <laughs> gender is complicated folks yeah i am and like it, it like for f- folks who were younger yeah. like this used to be like shit is so much so much better now um yeah anyway sorry keep going yeah that one of the things that i sort of acknowledged then and am more and more into now is the fact that if you're looking at kira and dax as the two sort of avatars of femininity on deep space nine like they just crumple up the butch femme dichotomy, the idea, just to back up a little, the the idea that like, um, and it was really, it came out of a good place of sort of liberating queer women who wish to present themselves with sort of their masculinity forward like giving them a space to be butch was really empowering and then giving queer women who um, 
who who were aligned more with conventional femininity a way to say like my femininity doesn't cancel out my attraction to women like that was empowering for those people too so the butch to butch and femme worked for a lot of people um but um kira and dax kind of tossed that out the window because both of them have ways in which they present their masculinity or their resistance to conventional femininity in really bold ways, but both of them are also really conventionally feminine in the ways that are meaningful to them. And I think that that's closer to what um, contemporary feminism and um, and queer activism really pushes, and it's been great for me, um, but it was rare to see that really championed in a way that I could relate to at the time. I mean, it still took until Discovery for there to be a female person like on Star Trek who's like actually traditionally butch presenting though, right? Like when I when, when I when I first saw um, Tig Notaro, I was like, oh my god, they didn't put Tig in makeup. Like this is amazing. Like this is not even a thing. Like just to have that as an option um, is like still you know pretty radical. Well, yeah, I mean, um, Discovery. There's like no straight people on Discovery, but <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like it's you know it's complicated. I feel like I I, I feel like I'm supposed to now go into a big thing about the ways in which Bush Femme was repressed in the 70s, but I, we're not. We put like asterisk that. You know, talk to me later. I have a lot of this stuff on this. Anyway, but yeah, basically the show does sort of say like there's multiple ways you can present, you know, gender while still being female identified person. Um, and uh, yeah, that's cool. And there's a lot of ways that you can um, communicate your own personal femininity while still being a person who is treated with respect and authority. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't make them any less in charge that like that they're like wear makeup and stuff like that. Right. It doesn't make them silly or trite. Yeah. And it does, you know, everything goes back to Garrick, but you can be also a more femme presenting man and still be strong and dangerous. And yeah, um, totally like it applies in the same way that we were talking about feminism empowering men that that applies to that too. And the number of men on the show who are very, you know, tender fathers and um, not you Worf, but certainly Cisco and (laughs) O'Brien and Rom um, (laughs) that, uh, that space for expressing gender as you want is pretty open on deep space nine here here um so i am going to move on to our last bullet point here um which is where sarah daniel gets into theory um and it's important because um it sort of underlies what we're doing and also a lot of the the fourth wall business that um, that Deep Space Nine occasionally engages in. And that's the sort of deconstructionist and post-structuralist approach to media. And really what it started doing was giving feminist thinkers the tools 
to look at how everyday culture was um, was portraying gender and using that both to understand how the culture at large perceives gender and also using it as a tool to influence media to do better or do differently. And a lot of the changes we've seen in media in terms of gender representation, in terms of um, ethnic and racial diversity, in terms of um, queer representation and lagging behind, but still sort of getting there, representations of disability and fatness and body diversity. Um, a lot mm -hmm. of that really originated in 90s theory, um, holding mass media up as a mirror to how many of our assumptions about gender and other things um, are not just the way things are, but the way we do things. And, um, and even though I don't think the writers of Deep Space Nine sat down and had conversations about Susan Bordeaux, um, <laughs> like, it's clear to me that especially in the later seasons of the show, there was an awareness that Star Trek has a profound effect on its viewers and that the representations of women, of Black people, um, and so on, that um, Star Trek puts forward are going to influence how children and young people perceive themselves and perceive others. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason why this show is like one that people still continue to talk about the complexity and the levels of symbolism. And it has like actual deconstruction of science fiction genre episode as well. Yeah, it has several, like it has the big one, it has Far Beyond the Stars, and then that concept keeps returning. Um, yeah. So it's sort of knowing that alongside this sort of like activism facing feminism, there's also um, ways in which the way that feminism interacted with the arts and especially with pop culture was really changing. Um, and that one of the reasons most 90s TV, you watch it and go, oh my God, is there not a single person in New York City who is not white in this universe? Whereas you turn on Deep Space Nine <clears throat> and of the main cast, there is one white man who is not in heavy makeup. That is true. Uh, it's such a wonderful show. It is such a good <laughs> show. And it, and like as much as it has its moments of like, you that individual man is being gross and we really wish he'd like get called out on it fully um it really is a show that you see where it was in history and are kind of proud of it most of the time i mean here's the thing like sometimes i see folks being critical of it being like oh my god you don't know that xyz is sexist or like this wouldn't be how i would do it. to me like the fact that the show is making is like making an effort is interesting and the ways in which it succeeds and fails 
are so specifically 90s that it's that itself is also interesting and interesting as a time capsule. And like, I, I can't imagine limiting myself to only consuming art that's like 100% on the same page with as me when it comes to like politics and all of that. Um, I mean, I guess that's obvious because folks know what kind of music I listen to by terrible, terrible men. But like, I, I, uh, I just can't imagine saying like, well, this show isn't adequately feminist and therefore I'm not going to watch it. But I'm not going to tell anybody they need to watch it. You know, if if watching some of the sexual harassment that happens on the screen is like triggering for you, like you don't have to watch it. If somebody wants to skip the episodes of Quark being uh, sexually harassing his employees, like let's well, let's flag those with content warnings. You don't need to watch it. But I'm also not going to say like, oh, this show is not adequately feminist and therefore it's bad. Yeah. And I feel like what we've kind of gone through here is saying like adequately feminist is not really a meaningful barometer. It's like it's more like is the kind of feminism that the show is at least attempting to engage with. Does it work for you? And I think for both of us. Have, and I think part of it is that both of us came of age in the 90s and came in, came of age with this stage of feminist thought that we both look at it and go, eh, you know, when we write our reboot, we are more progressive because things have changed. But we look at this and go, it holds up a hell of a lot better than most things from the same time and was mm-hmm. engaging more actively in a lot of those questions than most pop culture from its time. Yeah. Exactly. Like it it was trying to deal with feminism on purpose. There was an episode recently that I saw had a woman writer that had was the most like, oh, no, duh, kind of thing. I'm blanking what it was. Definitely also going to acknowledge how many problems the show had behind the camera in terms of treating women working on it and not having enough women in power behind the camera. But it did have some for sure. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We we have some other amazing guests lined up for the future. Continue sending us your questions and ideas. I, I am on Twitter a little bit too much as E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. That's Elana Brooklyn. Um, with this third episode, I intend to start a new RSS feed that's just going to be for Deep Space Dive. Um, I might continue to cross post episodes to Graphic Policy Radio's RSS for a while as well, too. But I think it's important for our Trek fans to be able to just find our Trek episodes without necessarily getting sidetracked by me interviewing comics writers and artists, which, of course, I do hope you listen to also. Like, I'm about to have an amazing interview with Kieran Gillen about the new Eternals comics series. I just had Jay Edited on, who's like a total freaking genius. And we talked a lot about his Cyclops comic that just came out. So I hope folks who are interested in comics will listen to that stuff too. But I am going to make it possible for folks who are just here for the Star Trek to just mainline that Star Trek under the name Deep Space Dive. And Graphic Policy Radio continues to be the broader house. And Sarah? I am Sarah Daniel Rasher. I am on Twitter, not nearly as much as Alana is at Padashah, P-A-S underscore D-E-C-H-A-T. I and I write about film and figure skating at thefinersports.com. Um, and I am mostly boring people about figure skating this week because it's the the national championships and I will probably be back to movies and Star Trek after that. Uh hooray. Hooray. Hooray for some. Bummer for Enjoy others. your sports thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Enjoy your sports thing. Um cool beans. 
Well, thank you guys again. Thank you, David Raphael Levin, my brother, for our wonderful, wonderful music. And um, see you next week-ish. And remember, Odo says, do not put your hands on women on women's thighs on the promenade, or you really will never raise a glass with it again.